everybody. Hey, everybody. Patty said she was going to say first. I was going to say hi first, and we did that. We did it. So I hope, hope you all are great on this Monday afternoon as we resumed our journey through Isaiah. So, let's see. Um, kind of a big weekend because we went down to Lauren Gerlach's graduation from seminary at, hi, Lauren. at Perkins. I think she's <laughs> online and, you know, she graduated summa cum laude, which is the top, the top academic top academic honor and she received a special award in church history and um it's just it was a big day and yes. huge huge we're so proud of her yep so proud it was of something her. it was something it was great yes. so we're all so proud of her and she's part of the saint andrew family and we're just just grateful to have her and anybody who ever saw those whiteboards down imperial hall in the pre-pandemic uh, days monday nights when you monday come, nights well you know you know how much she put what into i'm this. talking about yeah. how much she put into it and why <laughs> why she learned her church history for sure that's true that is so true so okay let's see so go mavs go mavs wasn't that weird yes i mean i mean really it was 57 to 27 at halftime. It was crazy. It was crazy. It was, wow. Yeah. I haven't seen any reporting about stats compared to other Game 7s, but that has to be one of the most shocking Game 7 outcomes of all time. Not that the Mavs won, but to literally yes. demolish them. And I am sure nobody could be happier than my... Stepson Matt and my grandson Nate, they are huge Mavs fans. Right. Huge Mavs right. fans. So. They try to go to a lot of games, and I know that little Nate has got to be ecstatic over this. He must this. have been having a lot of fun as those Yes. Mavs I say little were, little Nate. Yeah, He's our, yeah. like, six-foot-two, 14-year-old grandson. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not little Nate anymore, little is Nate. So. So that So that's exciting and too bad for the stars. But, hey, they took it all the way to Game 7. Um, they just need to have a little better next year, get seated a little bit higher in the Stanley Cup. Yep. So, yep. anyway, big big sports days in Dallas. It was. Jordan Spieth came within one stroke. That's right. right? Of a tying, anyway. Uh, absolutely. Two strokes of winning the, the Byron Nelson. So we, we were just switching channels back and forth, trying to watch NASCAR and the Byron Nelson and everything else all at once. So who won the NASCAR race at Kansas? You remember? Is it all just washed away at this one day later? No. It, it <laughs> was the, like, 43-year-old Kurt Busch. Not ah. Kyle, the older brother. And um, that was his first... This, well, this is big. Okay, this is big. Because Michael Jordan, I mean, the superstar, the greatest of all time basketball player... Um, he decided to join with another driver that I really like named Denny Hamlin. They have their own team, and this was the very first car that won a NASCAR race for them. So this was huge. I think this is really going to do big things for NASCAR. Yeah. Because of all the They called celebrity. their team, remember what they called their team? 2311, because I think 23 must have been Jordan's number, because 11 is Denny, Hamlin's Denny Hamlin's car number. number. Yes. He's number 11 yes. in NASCAR. Um, that's his number. So, so a, anyway, it's a good day. Big day. We're ready to move on. As well on. as the church, I guess. <laughs> I guess we'll talk Bible stuff now. What do you think, Patty? Oh, you think? We, uh, I, yeah, I think know. we should. I think we should. Okay, <laughs> let's Alrighty. pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here on this Monday afternoon, in uh, the middle of May, and we 
are going to be resuming our journey through Isaiah. Um, the, the scroll offers so much to us, um, but it isn't easy. And uh, just help us to, to to not get lost in Isaiah, but but to see the 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 the, the larger story of your um, work in this world and with your people to redeem not only them but us and indeed um, all of all of humankind. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Alrighty, I'm gonna move over. Okay. All right, Patty, you got it. You know, I may be a little prejudiced, but I also think that Lauren was the prettiest girl that graduated. Without a doubt. <laughs> she was. <laughs> Without a doubt. Okay. So, let's see. We, we last week, um, we did Isaiah 40. And I, as I explained last week, Isaiah 40 is this real pivotal, pivotal chapter because... Chapters 1 to 39 come from the time of Isaiah, written by Isaiah, um, maybe written down by others, but it comes from the time of Isaiah. Beginning in chapter 40, it's a later writing um, from the time of the exile, and um, it speaks of hope and looking ahead um, and salvation after the darkest time in um the history of, of Israel. So, uh, as I explained last week, the Babylonian uh, Empire, led by Nebuchadnezzar, overran Jerusalem in the winter of 587-586 B.C., um, completing really a 20-year uh, conquering of Judea. It didn't take them that long. For most of the time in that period, Judah was just a client state, but but it finally came to an end, and and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, surrounded the city, uh, laid siege to it, and took it, and then sent tens of thousands of Jews into exile in Babylon, burned down the city, knocked down the city walls, and um, destroyed the temple. So it's just dark, dark, dark. It is the death of Jerusalem. Read the first. 10 verses of Lamentations, and you will, you will get some sense of how dark a time it was. And so they are in Babylon, and God comes to them and begins to talk to them about what lies ahead. And part of it God does through Jeremiah, because last week we looked at the uh, Jeremiah 29, where God says to the exiles in Babylon, well, go ahead I'm paraphrasing very freely. You can go ahead, make your homes, have your families, build your houses, plant your gardens. You're going to be there. Help, you know, help the community, help the city. What will be good for Babylon will be good for you. And indeed, we can be sure that there were many exiles who took that to heart right? Took that to heart. And, and indeed, there was a Jewish community um, in the Mesopotamian Valley um, for, I don't even know how long, centuries afterward. The book of Esther is, comes from the Jewish community in Persia, a community of, made up of Jews who never went back to their ancestral home in, in Jerusalem, okay? But um, 
many Jews did want to return. They did want to go home. Jerusalem <coughs> was the place that they wanted to be. But as I explained last week, they were basically in, well, sort of, I guess you would say, in jail. And um, though I'm sure much of the time they weren't really willing to admit why they were there, that's not our way. Our way isn't really to offer up sincere confession of our sins on a regular and easy basis. But I imagine if pressed, quite a few would say, yeah, you know, we really were faithless toward God. And, and, and now they are, now they are in, in jail. And so in Isaiah 40, God brings through the prophet, whatever, whoever exactly this particular prophet is from the, I call it the school of Isaiah, in the, in the line of Isaiah, this word that yes, 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 okay, their time has been served, the penalty's been paid, they are going to be brought home. And that will shape much of what we're going to be doing in the coming weeks, right? Um, because it raises all kinds of questions about, well, okay, I hear the promise, but how is this going to happen? And how can we be sure about this? And what about all the, what about all the quote, bad guys around us and so forth? So, so we're going to um, kind of just go through this chapter by chapter. We will try to be, to be in the... Um, helicopter a bit now and then for it. Uh, we saw last week that this chapter 40, the introduction to it, is used um, in the Gospels to talk about John the Baptist, that he is that he is announcing that finally, 500 years later, more than 500 years later, that finally the time has come for the fulfillment of these promises, and that fulfillment happens in Jesus. So when we come to Isaiah as Christians, we are going to read Jesus into these chapters in a way that um, Jews wouldn't. They would um, tend to see Israel as the uh, servant helper, Israel as the suffering servant. What we will see um, Jesus in this, not only because it will just sort of scream out to us, but because the gospel writers use the scroll of Isaiah um, and parts of it to speak of Jesus. It, it's like, it's like Jesus, it, not just like, it is. Jesus is the, the fulfillment of, of the promises that are made in, in Isaiah, which tells you what? This is really something we need to remember for our own lives. You know, it's things don't always happen on the time frames that we like. The good guys don't always win. We don't always beat the disease that we have. We don't. People die in wars and they die in accidents and they die in violence and they die in Ukraine and in Buffalo and at that church in California. and the... So when you come to the promises that God makes, you have to have a larger perspective 
about the world and about ourselves and our existence. Um, uh, Jews who expected the ultimate fulfillment of, of God's promises in their own lifetime, Jews who lived in 400 B.C. or 300 B.C. or 200 B.C., it would be easy for them to be disappointed, right? Because the ultimate fulfillment of those promises still lay ahead. For us, we understand that the ultimate fulfillment of those promises was in Jesus and that we live between the times and we are now merely waiting for Jesus to return as we build for his kingdom. But God's victory over sin and death has been won. That's the kind of language we use now on this side of Jesus as opposed to the people who are the first readers of these these messages, these oracles, who are living centuries before Jesus. Because the promises are pretty immense sometimes here and there in this. So I thought... You know, there's just a lot of pieces of Isaiah that we love. So, um, let's just take it in a very enjoyable part, and then we'll come to chapter 41, okay, which is where we're actually um, supposed to start today. So go back to Isaiah 40, 28, and we'll just read through it. Isaiah 40. Verse 28, whatever I said. <laughs> Isaiah 40, verse 28. I don't know what I said. All right. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord, Yahweh, right? That's the name of God there under those small caps. Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths, young people, teenagers grow tired and weary. And young men, strong, virile, young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in Yahweh will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Such a whole famous. Famous. And we, we, we just, um, we will hear that echoed a lot in the coming chapters and said different ways, okay, about, about who God is and who we are and, um, what should be our readiness to rely upon God. So we turn then, um, obviously they're not chapter divisions in the Hebrew scripture, not chapter divisions in your, right in the originals. These all chapter stuff is only about 800 years old. So the next thing that comes up in beginning chapter 41, verse one is our our it's it's cast as a trial and i've put together a slide with an outline on it to help us kind of feel like we can we can make our way through this and understand what's happening okay so let's go to my slides what's the next what happened another slide 
Boom. Okay, well, you're saying that. I'm going to say one thing. Okay. Um, folks, if you have already said that you're here today, you don't have to put anything, even if you've just said hi. But if you haven't said anything at all, will you just, like, say you're here? They're um, definitely having a problem with the counter at Facebook today. And I do keep a count for Scott that we turn in at the end of the year for... Um, to his secretary, Connie, who keeps these as records for the church. So I just kind of like to give them an accurate count. And I know that this count is way off where it says 14 people because I know how, thank you, Yvonne. I just saw like Yvonne and Laura Anderson. Thank you, girls. See, I had no idea, Missy Dean, no idea. Yeah, I know there's well over 20 people, probably close to 30, and it's telling me there's 14 people, so. And, I, and there are people who probably, who can't sign in because if you're just visiting the page, you're not a member of Facebook. You can you can view it, but you can't comment. Uh, thank you. So right. many people are saying things. It just to kind of give up me an idea because sometimes I look up and I'll say, "How in the world can there be 14 people when we've already <laughs> we've already talked to 20 horses?" How could has. that be? How yeah, could that be? So thank you all so 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 much. Appreciate. Okay. It. So, all right. So that well, I've talked about Jeremiah a bit talked about John the Baptist a bit. This is from last week. And here was the, the summary of chapter 40, okay? But here is an outline of chapters, well, it should say, say chapter 1 to 42. I mistyped that. There we go. My typing is getting worse and worse. It's very frustrating. And it, But it comes from a very helpful, kind of a little bit easier to use commentary um, on Isaiah that is one of the commentaries that is helping me, you know, make our way through this. So, um, this is a court scene in chapters 41 and 42. And it focuses on the steps that God will take to rescue his people and all the questions that arise from it. Okay, because just, just imagine, here's the situation. The people hear the words of promise. Back at the beginning of chapter 40, oh, you don't have to go back to chapter 40 unless it's easy. God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, her sin has been paid for, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Past tense. But they are still living in Babylon, a thousand miles from home. It isn't, it isn't even like they're this own city surrounded by enemies as they once were. Now, they're just exiles living away in a foreign land, in a foreign world, where they're expected to go along to get along to go along or however it goes. So, so how can God do this? How can God do this, really? Um, so we're going to God's going to announce the first steps in this, and then look at Part B in Chapter Forty-One. Israel's fears are going to be addressed, and then God is going to address the foreign gods. Okay, because that is really what it's going to come down to these foreign gods and 
and the leaders of these foreign peoples and even the leaders of Israel, to whom, to whom should they turn? Even, even in a godless world, even in a pagan world, they should be turning to Yahweh. They should abandon the gods that they make out of gold and silver and stone and wood, and they should embrace Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And certainly, of course, the Jews should embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? So, so it's what's, what's fascinating to me as I read through this is really, in a way, how contemporary it is. Because we live in a we live in a, a a time of sure increasing godlessness. You only have to look at the polling about. You don't even have to look at the polling about beliefs or what people say they think. You have to have to look at polling around church attendance and contributions and other things to see that. Even in America, we are walking down the path that, that Western Europe set for us, which is um, less and less God, less and less church attendance, um, churches becoming museums and skate parks and all the rest of it. And because we are behind that trend in America, it's easy to lose sight of that happening. But if you look at the polling and you look at people who are under 40, wow, it's very, it's very sad. And um, we're going to hear a lot really about that kind of thing in here, I think. And I will try to bring some of it out because I want this book of Isaiah to be meaningful to us today because it is. Um, and maybe even strikingly so at times. So, all right. So, chapter 41. Well, let me pause. Any questions, Patty? No, not yet, hon. Everything's Okay. Good. Chapter 41. We're going to call the court into session. Um, Be silent before me, you islands. Well, that, okay, that's right off the bat. Isn't that kind of a funny thing? You islands. The word in Hebrew is a word that can mean island, coastal region, the Jews were land-loving people, and they were basically a landlocked kingdom. And so it just means, it's a way to talk about the nations surrounding Israel. It's really a way to talk about all of the pagan nations. And I kind of wish they used a different word than islands, because they could trans translate it a little differently than that, because it kind of jumps off the page at me every time. But anyway... Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Okay, so that puts this kind of trial tone to it. Of course, God is the prosecutor. At times, God will be um, on defense. God will be the judge. But let the nations come forward. Let them speak. Let us meet together at this place of judgment. And so then, verse 2. Um, Who has stirred up one from the east 
calling him in righteousness to his servants. Now, I will t I'm going to jump the gun. I'm going to tell you right off who these pronouns are talking about. The one who has stirred up is God. The one who has been stirred up is Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor who will allow the exiles to in Babylon to begin to return home. Because Cyrus the Persian, his, he called himself the Great Liberator. His way of dealing with conquered peoples was allowed, to allow them to remain in their homes, in their place, and work for the greater good of Persia as opposed to the Babylonians, which would take people and ship them back to Babylon. So Cyrus, the great liberator, um, overruns the Babylonians, takes power, and then begins to allow exilees to return to their homelands. And that's going to be the story of the Jews. They're going to begin that journey back in about 540 B.C. 539 to be exact, I think, about 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, about 70 years after the first exilees left Jerusalem, because like in Daniel, like I explained last week, Daniel is, is, and his friends are exiled, and that happens in like 605 or something, because there was a long period that the Babylon was dominant over Jerusalem. Um, and so the exile is actually kind of a dragged out deal. So, those are the players. Who has stirred up one from the east? That's going to be Cyrus, the one from the east. Calling him in righteousness to his servants. Cyrus is going to do God's bidding. He, God, hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He presume, pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh. <laughs> oh, I, Yahweh, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. So the pronouns, and I guess there's shifts of in the Hebrew that makes this confusing so, but it all boils down to this, that God is raising up Cyrus to do God's work, and that is going to be to allow the exiles to return home. Because God is God, God is sovereign. If he wants to make this happen, then it will happen. Verse 5, the islands, the pagan nations, have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and they come forward and they help each other and they say to their companions, be strong, because they are seeking to, you know, support one another. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith. And the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it's good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. And you realize that what's happening in those verses 
is that here these pagan nations are work, you know, in this picture, they're almost like they're working together to be mutually supportive of one another in their idol worship, in their godlessness. Because do the idols represent real gods? Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. They're fake. They're they're they are figments of the fevered religious imagination of these people. They're fake. They're, those aren't real gods. Baal isn't a real god. Dagon wasn't a real god. They were created by people to satisfy a heart that is searching for its true God and without even realizing that the true God is right in front of them and the God of these Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One says of the welding, well, that's good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. It's just not the way. It, you know, we, we saw um, in some previous chapters in Isaiah how even the Jews, how their leaders would get all caught up with their own sort of realistic politics and realistic statecraft, thinking they were helping themselves with their treaties with the Egyptians or whomever and ignoring God. And the result was... They got swallowed up. They got swallowed up. And so will these pagan nations. Verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Right? Because God chose Abraham. I'm sometimes asked, why Abraham? I don't know. Abraham proves to be a good choice. Would a, could Abraham was Abraham the only good choice open to God? I don't know. All I know is God chose Abraham. And understand that throughout the Bible chosenness in this way well there's a darkness that goes with it. Because the people of God are the ones who have actually been told how they are to live. The Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, is given to the family of Abraham, right? Not to the world at large. That isn't what happens at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. At Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, the law is given to the people of God, to the family of Abraham, to these dusty chosen people so they know which means what they can't plead ignorance they can't plead ignorance they know specifically with great certainty how they are to live what God wants for them that they are to love their neighbor that they are to love God that if they find their neighbor's you know, oxen tied to a tree, they're to take it to their neighbor. 
They aren't to covet what their neighbor has. They aren't to commit murder. They are to, to, to bear true witness in a law court. They are to remain faithful to their spouses. It's, um, and they, so the people of God, the chosen people of God, know what sin is in a way the larger world doesn't because it's spelled out for them. And I, I always remember, I heard an N.T. Wright lecture about this once. He said it's like a, it's like a, 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 a horrid magnifying glass shine, focused on the people of God and there is a darkness that's getting more and more focused until finally it's focused completely and utterly on one Jew whose name was Jesus. And I thought that was that was very powerful because the Jews know. So yes, they're chosen. Yes. Verse 8. You Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. And God was friend with Abraham, so much so that Abraham would negotiate with God. Can you imagine such a thing? Negotiating with God? Bargaining with God? In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it, it doesn't begin with destruction and everything. It begins with God and Abraham standing there side by side and God telling him that, well, you know, this city, it's so evil, it's going. And Abraham saying, but God, what if there's 50 people, righteous people in this city? And then God saying, okay, if there's 50 righteous people, I'll spare it. And then Abraham says, what if there's 40? And God says, okay, if there's 40, I'll spare it. All the way down, 40, 30, 25, 20, 10. I mean, it's remarkable. And every time it speaks to me of the deep relationship, abiding personal relationship that God desires to have with Abraham. Scott, don't you think a lot of us do that today, though? We may not get the answer back from God telling us, <laughs> like the conversation going both ways, but how often do we, we may not say it to anybody else, but to right. ourselves in our own prayer life. God, if you'll only do this for me, right. I'll make sure that I do X, Y, and Z, or whatever. It's like when I was in fourth grade, and I would say, well, God, if you'll only, you know, <laughs> only let me pass this yes. test, I promise I'll be in church every single Sunday yes. or whatever. Right, those right now, so, so what's well, the difference? sometimes into our in adulthood, too. You know, what's the difference help? between those two things? Well, the, to me, of course, the difference in, in what we're talking about right now is that God had such a close personal relationship with Abraham that he was actually part of the conversation. And Abraham wasn't asking anything for himself. No, no. The story is really about God demand, Abraham demanding that God be righteous, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Which, which I think maybe we do sometimes, right? When something terrible, I heard you say something last night after the, you know, we were talking about what happened in Buffalo and then in mm -hmm. California yes. about, you know, why? God, why don't you do more? Yes, I did. Right? That's fair. That's a fair question. We may not know the answer, but it's not an unfair question. It's not an unfair question. It 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 because it comes from a place of desiring righteousness, justice, and the rest of it, and. 
the Bible illustrates to me, I think to many people, from beginning to end, that that's who God is. God can take those questions. We may not get the answers we want, but but we can come to God with the questions because, at, first of all, God knows what's on our hearts anyway. <laughs> True. So it's not like you're going to keep it from him. So, I got bogged down here in verse 8. I'm but sorry, that was my <laughs> No, that was me. It's okay. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners, I called you. I'm, I'm teaching 1 Corinthians on Tuesdays. Paul likes to talk about that call that God reaches out, calls us to him. If you insist upon turning away, you can, but God, God calls us. I called you, God says in verse 9. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. Dot, 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 despite the million reasons you've given me to reject you. I mean, that's really the remarkable part that a lot of people miss in the biblical story is that Israel gives God a million reasons to walk away. Start over. Find a different people. Find a different planet. Something. But God doesn't. God doesn't. God stays. Because God's love for us is a lot more powerful than our faithlessness toward God. Let me say that again. I like that. God's love for us is much more powerful than our faithlessness toward God. That's the story of Israel. He doesn't abandon them. It would be understandable if he did, but he doesn't. In the same way, he doesn't abandon us. There is, there is nothing we can do that can put us outside God's grace and God's mercy. We can choose, we can choose to head away from God and stay there, But God's grace and God's love are still calling us back. Okay? Verse 10. God says, So do not fear. I know the project's big. I know you're exiles. And you can't imagine how you could get back to Jerusalem. But do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. For indeed, great empires, like we talked about last week, great empires come and go. They just do. They come and go. But God's word, God's truth, God's people endure. 
Verse 12, though you search for your enemies, you won't find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am Yahweh your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Those are powerful words. And yes, they're written to people who lived two and a half millennia ago long before Jesus. But God doesn't change. God is this this is this is this is a word written for us. This is a word written for me. For me to grasp that and understand it only requires that I understand that there is more to me than the short years that I have been given right now, that, that this, there's more to life than this life I'm living right now. Um, there are Christians who will, who will begin to, it, they will tend to take words like this and, and turn them into an everlasting promise that whatever ails you, God will heal. But that's. But we will all die. You just have to have a larger view of how God works with us and let God carry our hearts and let God carry our soul, even as, even as we might be fighting, you know, illness or accidents or whatever. Because indeed, God says to us, says to me, says to Scott, do not fear. I will help you. And I believe that. I know that. Linda Waldo's asking any significance of the right hand. The right hand is the hand of power. Jesus sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in the Apostles' Creed. Yep. It's all about the right hand. You know, poor, I always felt bad for left-handed people because I always feel kind of left out of some of this. It's just an ancient thing. Most people are right-handed, not left-handed. Takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Just talk about how small little Jacob is. Little Israel. I don't know that worm is really how I would translate this. I don't know what an alternative would be, but I'd find one. You worm Jacob, little Israel, do not fear. Remember the old, what was it? It was maybe Allstate or somebody had, they would sold insurance a long time, you know, and they had, the, for a long time they had this hand, the two hands like this. Um... The old song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Well, in this case, it's very personal and small. Jacob, little Israel, do not fear. For I myself, I myself will help you, declares Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. They're words of assurance 
for people who can't imagine that they could be helped. Right? And that's a word for a lot of people in our world today, Pop, I guess all for all time. Verse 15. <laughs> you know, a lot of times in, when we come to the Bible stuff, we get, you know, very spiritual and very devotional. And the Bible wants, will then become very, the images become very material and very real, okay? And these are people who have been shipped a thousand miles from home by their enemies. Their city's been destroyed and burned like, you know, the emotions, I'm sure, ran much like the emotions that were running when Psalm 137 was read, written, like we read last week. And he says, so God says, See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, which would thresh down wheat, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. The enemies is what he's talking about. He's saying, yeah, you're going to do this. These enemies are going to blow away like dust in the wind. You will rejoice in Yahweh and glory in the Holy One of Israel. And then God takes this idea of redemption. Let's make it a bigger idea. What are we talking about? We're talking about the salvation of Israel, right? Because the story of the exile, the story of Lamentations, is the death of Jerusalem. So we're really talking about a life after death, and even a life after life after death, a life where flesh could be knitted back on bones. In Ezekiel 37, what's the vision? Ah, the, you know, the hip bone's connected to the thigh bone, and the thigh bone's connected to the knee bone, the knee bone's connected to the whatever bone, and all, and, and so Israel comes back to life. This Israel in exile is restored, and the vision is not just a lot of spiritual niceties. It's a good, gritty, bone, muscle, ligament, tendon, the embodied restoration of Israel. Because we live in a world that is physical, that has gravity. And we need, we have bodily needs that must be met and, and all the rest of it. And so here in this next section, the the creation, the restoration of creation and the salvation of Israel are all going to be wrapped up together. As they should be. Because that's how the story began. In Genesis. Right? It was a beautiful world. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were given a beautiful world to live in and to work. So, Verse 17, the poor and the needy search for water, but there isn't any. 
Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. If you were a Jew reading this, hearing this, you probably would have, been, you probably would have heard it 500 years before Jesus, not read it. It would instantly call to mind the story of the Exodus. Because when the Hebrews cross over the Red Sea, they start whining about all the things they don't have one of which is safety from their enemies, one of which is food, and they, they're given the manna, and one of which is water. And God provides all three. And all if you go back and you read the stories, all three are clearly happening in a way to make it clear, <laughs> to be redundant, that, that, God is, that, that God is providing all three. Even the safety from enemies. If, I don't know if you've read the story lately, but <laughs> there's a big battle between the Hebrews and their enemies. And and Moses, when Moses' hands are up, the the Hebrews win. But when his hands start to falter, they lose down on the battlefield below. So people come and help hold his arms up. It's a hoot, honestly. It is a crazy thing. But yeah, because it's God's work. So here God says, okay. I will provide water. Verse 18, I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. These are people who, who generally live in a world in which there's just not enough water. There's not enough rain. There's not enough water. They know all about being parched, you know, desert and semi-desert climates. So this is just like, this is paradise. Verse 19, I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together. It's going to make it into a paradise. You see how the salvation of the people is wrapped up with the restoration of the land. And why is God going to do this? Verse 20. So that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of Yahweh has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. So that people may see and know, may consider and understand. Those are fascinating verbs to me. They may see and they may know, they consider and understand. To me, it makes an instant connection in my mind to the opening of Paul's letter to the Romans in the second chapter when Paul basically says, even the pagans should be able to look out a window and know there's God. And yet we live in a world in which there are so many people determined, determined, to run away or to deny to deny even the basic the basic acknowledgement that indeed there is a creator they just imagine that all of this everything that there is everything the hubble telescope has seen everything on this planet all the life all the hopes all the dreams all the love 
just all started with some sort of primordial soup that something happened to. And, and I guess there have always been people who have, maybe you have always believed something like that, though I guess really for most of human history, people have imagined that there were creators or somehow they had their stories I have a lot of books on my shelf about myths of creation from, from, from different peoples around, around the planet. People had stories of how that would happen. We just live at a time in which people are, are just, so many are unwilling to even entertain the idea or to entertain the idea that there is a God who might be interested in, in, in how they live or how they or how they treat others they just treat others they just reduce it all to their own standard of you know whatever they think is right well that's just going to go whatever think everybody's just going to do whatever is right in their own eyes and the last verse in the book of judges tells us the disaster that is so anyway i'm not going to get on my soapbox today we've got such a quiet group today do we yeah. Huh. Okay. Okay. Let's see. All right. So. Verse 21. Present your case. Remember, this is all a trial setting. Present your case, says Yahweh. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Same per right, same person. Tell us, you idols. Now this is this is this is mockery, really. Right, it is mockery. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Imagine somebody's got a great big statue of something or other. Um, the statue of Dagon in 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 First Samuel, or a, or or a statue of Baal, or anything else. Any other idol? Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them, and I know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. But it's mockery, because they're not. They're just figments. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear and quake at what, you know, this piece of wood or stone might do. Verse 24, the truth, the truth. But you are less than nothing. Your works are utterly worthless because they don't even exist. Whoever chooses you is detestable. Detestable. Whoever chooses you is detestable. God, I think, in Scripture, has a high regard for humanity. And he doesn't treat us like little children who might not know better. He thinks we are mature enough and smart enough and experienced enough to know better and that we should be able 
to see that, yes, indeed, there is a God and even make our way to understanding that that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can put it in Christian terms to understand that the resurrection of Jesus is not merely some invention of an ancient people, that there are really, really, really good reasons to believe that Jesus was resurrected, better reasons than to deny it. But most people don't ever go into any of that kind of thing. They just, they just, they just don't. They just don't think it's worth their time or whatever. So maybe in that way they are detestable. Okay. Um. This, of course, reminds me of um, the Book of Kings with Elijah and Baal, where he challenges Baal to do something, knowing that there really is no Baal, and of course Baal's a no-show and. Right? It's a really, it's really quite a funny story, isn't it? Yes. It's in First Kings eighteen. If you want to go read it later, when <laughs> and see Elijah mocks too in that story. Oh yeah, I mean, mockery definitely. is helpful. Mockery yes. is helpful sometimes because Elijah says to the priests of Baal are going around and around and they're beating themselves, calling on Baal to show up, and of course Baal is never going to show up because there is no Baal. Baal's never going to set set the bonfire on fire because there is no Baal. And Elijah screams out, well, perhaps he's off urinating. Taking a leak. <laughs> <laughs> right. Perhaps he's taking a nap. As Elijah's just waiting and waiting and waiting until they finally they all give up and Elijah lifts his hands up and says, okay, God, it's time. And boom, it happens. Because there is one God. There is one God and one God only. So... So how many years is there between these two? Do you have an idea? Sure, between... sure, sure. Let's say 300. Okay. And they're still worshiping all these same idols. The pagan nations do, yes. sure. Wow. And even, see, even after Elijah, the in in the Old Testament, the Jews themselves would still worship pag pagan idols and other foreign gods and goddesses. Um, because... I don't know. I don't know why. I think it's part because if you create the God, you can bend the God to your own purposes. And, you know, the Lord God is very demanding in his call for righteousness and for justice and for looking after the poor and the rest of it. And um, it is easier to... To ignore if you create the God and then you come up with a set of rituals and so forth that you think will satisfy your God and keep the crops growing, which is what your interest is. So, but yep, yep, and of course we could go through a long sermon series on what our idols are today. I think we did a sermon series once at St. Andrew going back 10 years called American Idol, we called it. I think so. We did American Idol. We yes. had like the idol of winning, the idol of family. You know the who idol I think came up with that idea? Ellen. Charles, I thought it was Charles Stokes. I think it was Ellen, Ellen okay. Galley. Okay. Yeah. I remember well, Charles really liking the whole idea. Though. Yeah, we did. It was. Yes. It's, yep, I remember it. Perhaps we'll revisit that now that American Idol is back. 
I'm not sure it went anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. We just left. <laughs> <laughs> it's still been here. Okay. So let's take a look at this outline and see where we are. Because we're just about down to verse 25. Okay, so in the first section, a God announced the first steps in, right toward rescuing the people, <coughs> the victor from the east <coughs> is Cyrus. Okay? In section B, God addresses Israel's fears, and that's where there's all these beautiful passages and verses about reminding the people they don't need to fear, they don't need to fear, that they indeed will crush their enemies and um, that God is going to restore Israel and to restore creation. And of course, that is the larger story that is being told here and comes to its culmination with the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth, which we know from Revelation, but actually comes from, guess what? The scroll of Isaiah. We'll get there someday. <laughs> Okay, and then the address to foreign gods, and that's what we just did, that these, these idols, these foreign gods who actually are worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. Okay, and now uh, the teacher here, the scholar here, puts this next few verses as God's predictive abilities and proofs. That sounds... Well, okay. Verse 25. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes. One from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know, or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I, this is God, was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. So who is that? Who is that? Who is that one from the north? One from the rising sun, that would be the east, who calls on my name. Is it Cyrus? Maybe. Is it looking further ahead, past Cyrus? See, that's where for, for, for Christians, I think, we're kind of drawn to looking further ahead. Because then it becomes easier for us to answer some of these who questions. Well, the, the who is Jesus, the one coming from the east, okay? When he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he rides in through the eastern gate. Who is this? And the messenger is becomes John the Baptist or something in our minds. And, and um, But I don't think there's this firm agreement about among scholars about who the one is from the north as there is about the previous section where it was clearly Cyrus. So, 28, 
I look, God looks, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel. What gods? No one to give answer when I ask them, because the pagan gods are non-existent. God isn't going to some large UN of pagan gods or something to consult about any of this. It all comes back to Yahweh, his people, and his sovereign sovereignty over this world. So verse 29, it finally becomes plain. See, they're all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. They're images. These are the images, these little, you've been to the museums. You've seen the little figurines and the larger figurines and the statues and all the rest of it. Of, of, of pagan gods and goddesses of various stripes and sizes and materials. Their images are but wind and confusion. They are just nothing. Just nothing. So now you're gonna we're, you're gonna feel right at home. So turn to verse turn to forty two because it, it, this is all 41 and 42 or one piece. This is part of the trial. Here is my servant, God says, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes faith, justice on earth. In his teaching, the nations, I'm going to change the islands to the nations, the pagan nations, will put their hope. There's no other place to go for hope than this servant of Yahweh. So I just want to show you how this, the Jews would have their own ways of understanding these passages. But the Christians would see in Jesus the fulfillment of a passage such as this one. So why don't you leave a little bookmark there and turn to the 12th, chapter of Matthew and the 18th verse. Matthew 12, 12 18. 12, 18. Scott, 12, 18. Got to find it on my little iPad here. <laughs> wow, directly from there. Wow, wow, wow. So, so let's start at 15 so we'll get a little context around this. Little, we'll see what Matthew does. Okay, so so look at look at verse fifteen in Matthew chapter twelve. I get so excited, I end up tripping over my own words. Matthew chapter twelve, verse fifteen. Aware of this, um, which is the Pharisees are plotting against him. Jesus withdrew from that place, and a large crowd followed him, as they so often it did, right? And he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill 
what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So this is Matthew speaking to us. These are not verses that Jesus grabbed. This is Matthew, the writer of the gospel, speaking to us, helping us to understand who Jesus is and helping us to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Verse 18. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. This is all God, right? The one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He's, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. And Matthew reaches back to Isaiah 42 and brings it forward. He says that little passage from Isaiah 42. He doesn't know of, that, know of it as Isaiah 42, of course, but the little passage from the scroll of Isaiah right there, this is who that's Jesus. Yeah. That's Jesus. That's that's whom God was that's whom God was talking about. Right there. This is a big connect the dots. It's a big connect the dots. That's what happens all that's how Isaiah ends up coming being in a way Christian scripture. That's what those who call it Christian scripture mean. That you find Jesus throughout Isaiah. Because that's what the New Testament writers do, who are inspired by God, right? It's what Jesus means when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, right? He came to fulfill the promises in the Old Testament, not to abolish them. The Old Testament story reaches its culmination in whom? Jesus. Its fulfillment in whom? Jesus. So go back to Isaiah. And there you have it. So, any questions about that? Uh, no. Okay, then I think we're just going to stop right there because the next section is a little bit long and I don't want to get cut short or get caught in the middle of it. So we will come back and when we come back together next week, we will read through 42, 1 through 4 again. And I'll remind you about the connection to Matthew. And then we will go on to verse 5 in this. It's sometimes called a servant song, but I don't know. I, you, I, don't, I don't know that it's a song or anybody ever sang it. It's a poem. It is poetry. And it, that, that's why in your Bibles it is laid out like poetry, okay? Because it is. It, it, but... May, I don't know that anybody put it to a tune. <laughs> okay, Miss Patty. All righty. Wow. We got through a lot, actually, today. Wow. We did. Wow, we did. Okay. We did. We, chapter 41 and a few, sort of peeked our way into 42. Yep. We did. We okay. We sure did. All righty. Okay.
So thanks everybody for being there. Thank you. I think they started getting caught up at the last few minutes of class. Um, all of a sudden the numbers jumped up quite a few. I don't know what was going on. We don't really understand how Facebook we don't. works. We, ju we just I, I, don't know. I'm not sure the Facebook people do. They might not. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But it works enough. Yes. It's worked for now. Yes. More than two years. Yes. We've been able to do exactly. this by oh, and it, large. It does work. It just sometimes we don't we don't capture a number that yeah. is reflecting what's really going on. Um, so anyway, thanks for a good lesson. Thank you, dear. Uh, that was a good lesson today. And um, we're just going to close in prayer. And we're going to pray for our friend, Sharon Kerr, who's on today with us. I know that. Sharon has been waiting for well over a month to have a surgery. Um, this is coming up finally this week to get a tumor removed. And that's on Friday. Very so, early on Friday, very, she told Very, very early on Friday. <laughs> so we're just going to pray that for her doctors. And we're going to pray for the, the skill of the doctors and uh fantastic outcome and a total and complete healing for Sharon and peace for Bob as he is the anxious spouse who waits and we all know when we love somebody who's sick or going through treatment it is sometimes it seems even harder on the person who's not actually getting the exactly the, you know the, the needed procedure so please join with me as we close Heavenly Father we thank you so much for this beautiful day today we thank you, God, for this class, and we thank you, God, for Scott explaining um, in better detail to us, in much better detail than we would get just reading these verses on our own, Lord. We are very grateful for that. Lord, please continue to watch over this group and keep us together. Keep us close, God, and to each other and, God, close to you. Um, we just pray, God, that you would bless us with good health, Lord, that you would help keep us safe. And, Lord, that we pray for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives. We pray, God, for our church, St. Andrew, and any other churches that may be um, recognized in this group here today, Lord. We know that sometimes just places of worship, God, can be a, a, place, of, a place of tragedy for some. And we just pray, God, that you would continue to watch over and protect and place. And please, Lord, just bless these houses of worship and keep them safe. We pray for our sister in faith, Sharon, and we pray that everything just goes perfectly, Lord, on this Friday. We also pray, Lord, um, for our class tomorrow um, and on 1 Corinthians, Lord, and we just ask you, God, to just watch over and bless and take care of this group. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. And you know, there are a lot of connections between what we did today in Isaiah and what we're going to do tomorrow in 1 Corinthians. It's funny how all that is, isn't it's it? It's funny <laughs> how that works. <laughs> Adios, everybody. Yeah, and if you've never come to Tuesday, <laughs> yeah, we're a fun bunch. Coming. Bring we a have, lunch. We have between like 50 and 60 Bring me people lunch. in person and a number <laughs> of people that just, um, you know, are online because they can't make it for one or another reason. And we'd love to have you join us anytime. It's a very big welcoming class downstairs in Piro Hall. And we hope to see you. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Adios. 12 o'clock. We start. Bye.